Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Our text this morning is taken from the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. In one of his most famous speeches, Abraham Lincoln quoted the Lord Jesus by saying, A house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, few people would know better than Abraham Lincoln just how important and how difficult it is to obtain unity within a group of people, specifically a country. And maybe you know a thing or two about that. I mean, unity is hard, isn't it? Uh, maybe you've got disunity of some kind in your family. Ever had a, an awkward family reunion where there's just a lot of water under the bridge and there's a lot of tenseness there and you just don't want to be, there's a lot of landmines you can't bring up in conversation because it's just going to erupt. Maybe your workplace is like this too. Um, There's disunity. Things have been said about certain people. Uh, Word gets around the office. Makes things uh, awkward, tense. Unity is difficult. It's not hard to see this in our country right now either. Uh, And neither of the candidates seem to be helping with that. We are more polarized probably now than ever. And when an organization of any kind lacks unity, it struggles. Those of you who are married, you know this. When when your marriage is together, when you're you're sound and you're you're clicking, it's like you can handle almost anything that comes against you and your family. But if there's disunity, if there's disharmony, it doesn't take much. The waves start crashing in on you, and pretty soon you start to have problems, significant problems. Unity is important. It's hard. I saw this play itself out in the NBA playoffs a couple weeks ago. Uh, Some of you, maybe you don't like basketball, no worries, you'll still understand the illustration. Um, I happen to like basketball. Uh, I was watching the, uh, actually I wasn't even watching this game, I just saw the highlights, but the Golden State Warriors, the world champion Golden State Warriors, were playing the Houston Rockets. And uh, 
the, the Warriors are the best team ever. They've won 73 games this year. Great team, heavily favored. And the Rockets are a good bunch of individuals. We'll say that about them. Really talented. Uh, and so when you look at their roster, you're like, how come these guys can't win more games? they got so many good players. they just got all the right components. You'd think that they could pull something off. But the Warriors just kept trouncing them. And then finally, uh, the, the, the Rockets managed to stay in a game. And they come down to the last couple seconds, and they have the ball, and their, their best player comes down. And he makes a move. Of course, he pushed off a little bit. But he makes a move, and he scores. Ends the game. They beat the best team in the league one time in the playoffs. And normally, the camera pans over to the, to the winning team's bench, and you see guys celebrating and high-fiving and, you know, and just having a good time. But the camera pans over to them, and not one of them even cracked a smile. You couldn't tell the difference between if they had lost the game or won the game. And right then and there, everybody knew, yeah, they won a game, but this series is over. That team is done. There's no unity. Unity is important. Every organization needs unity, and so do churches. And this is why Paul is urging the church at Philippi to unity. Here we are in week five of our our series in the book of Philippians. And today in our text, we're going to take a a few minutes to look at, number one, the purpose for unity that Paul has here, his plan for the the Philippians getting it, and the power for keeping it. All right, so this is a good Presbyterian sermon. We've got three Ps, all right? The, The purpose, the plan, and the power. And before we we dive into the purpose, I just want to make a couple of comments about unity in general. Uh, Because sometimes I think maybe we have a a misunderstanding or we can get off track. Uh, When Paul introduces it here in verse 2, well, let's just read it here together. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It sounds kind of redundant, but he really is going after this thing. And he started going after it in in the earlier chapter, in verse 27 of the previous chapter, he says, uh, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So by way of introduction, it's important to realize that unity is not an inherent good. It's not good all by itself. You don't just go for unity no matter what. Um, Unity always needs to come around something specific. And if we look throughout the course of human history, there have been atrocious, horrific things that have been very unified. Uh, The Nazi regime was incredibly unified, a horrific evil. The KKK is unified. Uh, We might even say that the demonic itself, as it unifies against God and its people, is extremely unified. So unity in and of itself is not a good thing, even though unity, when we say unity, it kind of brings positive thoughts and connotations. So uh, unity by itself, not a good thing. It always has to be about something, and that's what really matters. And Paul points this out to us. Uh, When he says, being of the same mind in in 127 and 2.2, what's he talking about there? Well, he's not just talking about, hey, person A and person B and person C and person D that disagree on this issue need to get together and you need to have exactly the same opinions on everything theologically. If that was the case, we'd all be in trouble, right? I mean, that is just not going to happen. So Paul says your unity, in verse 127, has got to be around something specific, and it is to come around the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what the church has been unified in for 2,000 years, and this is the only thing that will continue to unify us. 
All right, so this is not a generic unity that Paul's just saying, I just want you guys to be together, and I just want you guys to, you know, sit around the campfire and sing kumbaya and just kind of be nice to each other. No, he's saying, you need to be unified around something specific, the, per- the person and work of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. That's the only thing that can unify you. All right? So that's just, that was free. That was introduction. All right? Now let's get into the purpose of unity. What is Paul's purpose? Why is he so excited about this? Why is he, why is he hammering away at this idea of unity? Um, what's the big deal with unity? Why is it so important for the church? Uh, he says this is going to complete his joy, so obviously he's, he's excited about the possibility that if the church is in unity, there's something that will bring him joy here. But he doesn't really come out and say why he wants them to be unified. So we kind of have to look at the, the broader scope of Paul's letter here. And most of the commentators say, Hey, look, Paul's doing a lot of talking about suffering. Of course, he is in prison when he's writing this. He's doing a lot of talking to the Philippians about standing firm and about um, staying strong and staying together. Now, why would that be? Well, it seems to make sense that Paul's saying, look, I'm suffering. I'm in chains. Uh, We're all following the guy that they crucified. So it's likely that you could suffer as well. You could be persecuted as well. And in order to endure that adversity, like Pastor Bill preached about a couple weeks ago, in order to endure that struggle and that suffering that will likely come against this new church, Paul's saying, you've got to be unified. You've got to come together around the gospel. You've got to be in one heart, one mind. It's got to be brought about by the Holy Spirit. And that's why he's after it. Throughout the course of of Christian history, uh, the church has come around or has been unified in times of adversity and persecution. Um, Now, certainly persecution has produced bad things, like people apostatizing and leaving the faith, and then the church doesn't know what to do with them after the persecution's over. So persecution isn't just a a good thing all the time for the church, but in general, people spend less time worrying about trivial things when there's a chance you could get thrown to the lions the next day. You know, you just sort of like, well, let's just focus on the big things, guys. You know, let's just focus on preaching Jesus and him crucified, risen again, because this could be, this could be very bad for us in the next couple of days. Let's be together. Let's pray. I'm scared. Uh, and, and so it had a unifying effect on the church and always has done that in the past. So we have to ask ourselves today, why does this matter for us? Why do we care about unity? Um, I wasn't scared driving to church this morning. Were any of you? I mean, sure, there's a chance that somebody crazy, some ISIS person comes in here and tries to shoot us all up. There's a chance. But by and large, most of us will probably not face that. It could, certainly could happen in America. But by and large, most of us will not face that unless we go to other countries where, uh, you know, the gospel's being persecuted uh, at incredible lengths. So, so if we're not really afraid of persecution and, and we're not needing unity because of persecution like the Philippians were, then why is it important? There's a couple of good reasons. And to find these reasons, we have to actually go to Jesus' words in John chapter 17. And this is a big deal, you guys. Uh, This is what Jesus prayed for us. I always think it's interesting that Jesus prayed at all. He's God, right? Is that like talking to yourself? Um, I don't know. I don't understand that, you know, that Jesus actually prayed about things, asked the Father to do things. This is where the limits of my understanding of the Trinity get, but but I'm also interested in what Jesus prayed for. Like when he prayed about things, what did he pray for? Was it anything like what I pray for? This is what he prayed in John 17. 
verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, speaking to the disciples. He's not just praying for the disciples only. But he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That's you and I. Over 2,000 years ago, this faith has been handed over from the disciples now to us. And Jesus prayed for us. And what did he pray? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Get this. So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's why he prayed it. He wanted us to be one so that the world would believe that Jesus has come that he's been sent by the Father for our salvation. That is Jesus' prayer, and that's his hope. So nothing could be more important than us being unified as a church locally, us being unified as a church in the city of Sioux Falls, and globally around the world as we represent Christ to the world. We've got to be unified. Now, let's start locally, because this gets big fast. Uh, I think our struggle for unity here in Life Church. Um, is not typically around theological issues. Though we have theological differences, right? Um, we have a wide variety of theological backgrounds in here and every kind of different opinion and things. Uh, but by and large, we don't, agree, uh, we don't disagree on the major issues of the faith. You know, we say the Apostles' Creed together, and nobody says, I disagree. You know, we, we believe on the core issues of the faith pretty steadily. But I think our biggest struggle with unity, our, our biggest um, adversity in being a church of unity is individualism, um, self-sufficiency, self-centeredness. Like, as the, as the church in America, even in the Midwest especially, we're just used to not needing anyone. I mean, that's what insurance is for, right? You don't need people. You just get an insurance policy. You don't need a body of Christ. I think most of us feel obligated to be a part of the church. But not very many of us actually feel like we need it. There's not a lot of psychological force behind what that's pushing us to the church that, that, it may have, that may have been there in Philippi. We don't need one another. That's why the church has become increasingly convenient and consumer-driven. People's lives are, are, are focused around what's quick and easy in this sort of run-and-gun culture. And so taking time for people, taking time with people to be unified, to be in one accord, one heart, praying together even, just kind of become a thing of the past. I think that's the big thing that's coming against us. And if we won't come against this mindset, friends, we'll never be unified as a church. We will never accomplish what Jesus prayed for us. You know, when I dream about this church, I dream about a a community of people that's radically different from the world. Not like a cult, but, kind, you know, different. Just really different from the world. That when people look at us, they go, weird. Like, I want that. I don't want it, I, I don't want it to be where we just look the same as everybody, because then I think we're doing something wrong. Because Jesus was weird. He was a lot different than, than the culture. Um, so so I, I, I long for a community of people here that stays long after the service because they they want to be together. They want to encourage each other. They want to strengthen each other's faith. I dream about a community of people that really is, carries one another's burdens. Like you feel it. When someone's having a rough time, that person is not alone. They don't carry it alone. A community of people that beats with one heart, that they're on mission together, they're praying about the same kinds of things. They have one spirit that's moving in them. They have one mind that's centered around the gospel and taking that to the ends of the earth. 
that's what I dream about. I don't know what you dream about, but when you have one radical person that says, hey, I'm going to give my money away at eye-popping amounts. I'm going I'm to follow Jesus. I'm going to take care of the poor. Then people just say, that's just a religious fanatic. When you have hundreds of people doing that together, unified by one spirit around one man who is God, who was crucified and risen again, then the world takes notice. When you not just have hundreds of people, but thousands of people in a city doing that, serving and loving and laying down their lives as Jesus taught us to, then the city takes notice. When you have millions of people in a nation being known for those kinds of things, then the nation takes notice. When you have billions of people around the globe, two billion Christians worldwide around the globe saying, we follow this Jesus who was crucified and risen again, and that's why our lives are so different and so unique, and that's why we're so together and so concerned about each other's lives. We'll do anything. We'll, we'll get on planes. We'll give. We'll do whatever it takes to take care of each other and look after each other. Then I think the world says, whoa, maybe Jesus did come. Maybe Jesus is alive. That's the purpose of unity. That's what it's supposed to do. Now, if it's so important, what's the plan for obtaining it? How do we get it? Well, Paul says it happens as the Philippians do certain things. In short, he tells them they're going to need humility, Christ-like humility. So that's the secret. But I think humility is, is vastly misunderstood in our culture as well. When I say that person's a really humble person, do you understand what that means? Oftentimes I think we just equate that to be somebody who's maybe a little down on themselves. You know, like, oh, I suck, and everybody else is so awesome, and just kind of a lowly view of yourself, you know, kind of a Debbie Downer kind of person. Um, or at least we would say that person's not arrogant or cocky, and that's what it means to be humble. But I think Paul would define it here in a radically different way. Um, I think Paul does define it here, and he would call it self-forgetfulness. That's what I want you to think of when you think of humility. Think of self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less, like C.S. Lewis put it. Hopefully that doesn't confuse you more. But I think that Paul is saying here, um, seems to be defining that humility is about forgetting about yourself for a while and just looking to serve Christ and others. That's, that's simply what he's saying. I mean, look at the phrase that he uses in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, we could just stop there and spend the rest of our lives trying to do that. I mean, isn't that hard? Uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing? I mean, come on, Paul. This is the default mode of a human heart. Selfishness. This is what's wrong with the whole world. Selfishness. This is our, our issue. It's easy and natural to think of ourselves. I was talking with one of my friends at Noonball the other day. We got talking, I don't know how these things come up. We got talking about uh, marriage counseling and, and how it worked for him when he was going through it. And he said that their university actually offered some premarital counseling classes. And they were kind of done in a group setting. And so they were going around the circle and these couples were sharing. And they had to share what you think will be your biggest, most difficult issue once you're married. <laughs> and so they all go around the circle and share things. And he said, then we got to this really young, sort of green, wet behind the ears kid that's getting married. And he goes, this guy actually said this. He goes, I think I'm just going to have a really hard time, you know, taking enough time for myself. And I'm just going to have such a hard time, you know, 
uh, because I'm going I'm to give too much. And he's like, you idiot. That's going to be the least of your problems. You're going to have tons of problems that come way before that. That's natural. You're going to do that stuff naturally. You know, selfishness comes natural to us. We don't have to try uh, to be selfish. It comes natural. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Then he goes on, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Again, this is not a Debbie Downer kind of thing, like, I'm so terrible, everybody else is so awesome. It's not that kind of a thing. It's because that's still self-focus, you realize. When you're just thinking about how terrible you are, that's still self-focus. It's still pride in a kind of a weird way. Self-forgetfulness is where you just kind of forget about yourself. You think about other people's problems, their issues, their successes, and you think, whoa, that's so significant, what's going on in their life. And you just find yourself thinking about them a lot. You find yourself thinking about others a lot. Um, C.S. Lewis clears this up for us, I think, in Mere Christianity. He says, when he describes a humble person, he says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the, a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's it. See, friends, humility is self-forgetfulness. Paul continues by saying, don't just look at your own interests, look at the interests of others. And, of course, Paul's context here is the Philippian church, so we have to ask ourselves here, um, when's the last time I was really grieved with someone else who was grieving something in life church, especially for you covenant members? Uh, when, how am I burdened by other people's burdens here in life church? Do I carry them at all? How does it feel compared to my own burdens? Because that's what Paul's saying. Don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. When's the last time you lost some sleep over someone else's issue here in Life Church? You're just like, oh man, I just can't believe this is happening to them, and I just, I just, I just ache for them. You ever have that? Because that's unity. That's self-forgetfulness, which brings about unity. That's humility bringing about unity, if you have that going on. Now, if you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Dave, this is impossible, then that's good. That means you're operating in reality. Paul's list here is uh, a really, really difficult list. Um, As a matter of fact, I don't think any Christian does this perfectly, and I don't think this is actually possible apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, well, I know some some Buddhists or Muslims who are really good moral people. They're self-giving, loving people. Uh, kind people, and that's true. But I would say that if we dig down into, you know, take uh, Muslims trying to keep the, the five pillars, but in the end, isn't there a selfish motive? Um, you know, basically, it's a salvation by works. So your good has to outweigh your bad. So them doing good is actually good for them. Um, a Buddhist is, is, is trying to follow the eightfold path to get to uh, nirvana. So if they do something good for you, it's going to have a dividend for them. It's going to have a return for them. Isn't that still selfishness? I see, I think this is what really separates Christianity from all other world religions, is our salvation could not be earned. It was a gift. Nothing you could do, no amount of humility or self-forgetfulness would ever make you right with God. 
he had to come to earth and die and rise again so that you could be free. And he's the only one that can give you the power to be truly self-forgetful, where we can be unified. That's where we get to the power. Paul says in verse 5, he addresses this. The power for keeping this unity that comes through humility. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love, I love the ESV translators, how they said that. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not something you get through self-help. It's not something you can grab off a shelf at Barnes & Nobles. It's, it's not something a guru can teach you. It is yours as you are connected to Jesus Christ. He gives you his mindset in the power of the Holy Spirit. You actually get the mind of Christ. Isn't that crazy? You actually get the mind of Christ. More and more each year as you're discipled, as you are, are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, you get the mind of Christ. And here's, here's the kicker. Here's the big idea. Jesus Christ was the most self-forgetful person who's ever lived. He's the most humble person who's ever lived. This is why it's so refreshing being around really mature Christians who are really old and they followed Jesus for a long, long time because they've basically forgotten about themselves entirely. They're just not thinking about themselves anymore. And, and they're thinking about how to serve others in Christ. That's what they're thinking about because the mind of Christ has taken hold in them. That's what happened. It's an amazing thing. Now look at this. Christ is such a powerful example here. I love how Paul uses it, and he just fleshes this out, and this is thought to be a poem. But in verse 6, he says this, Jesus, who thought, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, can you grasp this? Jesus is the most self-forgetful person ever because he had the most to forget about. He had the most to give up. He was God. All the power, all the authority, all the glory, all the honor, all the, the prestige, and he left his throne in heaven. He came to earth, became a man. How humbling. Born as a baby. Weak and vulnerable. Not only that, he served men. God serving men. How does this happen? self-forgetfulness at its peak. Then he was crucified. Died. For you and for me. Could there be any stronger example of self-forgetfulness? Could there be any greater power for you, for me, for the church to follow his example, to be self-forgetful, and in that to produce unity everywhere we go? I'm not sure where you find yourself here this morning. Uh, if you're like me, you're finding that you need more humility to produce unity in every area of your life. I said that Paul wrote this letter not to individuals, but to the church at Philippi. Um, but that doesn't mean that this doesn't have effect on every sphere in your individual life. I mean, isn't humility, isn't uh, self-forgetfulness exactly what your marriage is needing? guarantee you this is like fertilizer for your marriage. Humility brings unity. Self-forgetfulness brings unity. Uh, I guarantee you this is the medicine that your family is needing. Someone to be humble and self-forgetful, like Christ. Uh, I guarantee you that this is 
what will help in your office environment. Someone that just seeks to serve and love and bless others as Christ would. This is always going to bring about unity. Self-forgetfulness, humility always brings about unity in whatever environment. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would do that in us. But this text is not speaking to us as individuals primarily. First and foremost, it's speaking to us together as a church. And I'm asking myself a lot of hard questions about Life Church, so let's just start with Life Church. What is this saying to us as a church? Um, I think we have to start with saying, how is, how is the Holy Spirit leading us to act and think more in, in such a way that we would answer Jesus' prayer for us, that we would be one? Um, I think it comes down to praying against individualism, praying against this self-sufficiency that we have as Mid- Midwesterners and saying, all right, I, I can't have this mindset that I don't need people as a Christian. It's a non-Christian mindset that I don't need the church. I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need people. That is not a Christian mindset. So Holy Spirit, will you work in me a, a godly dependency on the body of Christ, on others, so that when I come to church, I come both needing and needing to give. And I have that mindset about me that I can't just do bedside Baptist and just arrange my, my, little, my little world and be fine. I need the body of Christ to strengthen me, to feed me, to encourage me, to discipline me. I need this group of people. I think it starts with that. We, we pray against that. But maybe for you, uh, this, this looks like giving some more of your time and saying, all right, um, in this fast-paced culture, that just that sort of is like napalm for relationships. We just don't have time for anybody anymore. You just sort of say, all right, I'm going to build some relational time into my schedule. I'm going to build some time to produce unity and to be with people and genuinely, authentically care about them. Uh, maybe for you, it's that you make yourself a little vulnerable. You open up to people in a way that says, all right, I'm going to share my life with you because I've been connected to you through Jesus Christ and believing this gospel. Maybe for you it's something about serving or something about putting others' uh, interests and needs before your own, thinking more highly of them. Maybe it's like you just, you always got to be right. So, so this is about you saying someone else's ideas are pretty good. Someone else's thoughts are pretty good. I don't always have to have my way. What could that do to create unity in this church as we move forward? We have a close church here, friends, but we can always use to grow in this area. Now, how about globally? Uh, As for unity in the church worldwide, sometimes it just seems like Everest, you know, just looking at it with all the things that have happened throughout church history, all the smoldering offenses and all of the theological disagreements. It's just like, I'm sure Dr. Hitchcock could tell you from church history that this, there's, we have a pretty bad past um, of disagreements and those causing division and those divisions splintering and, and those splinters splintering further, and we see this in the church today. But Life Church has to be committed to being an ecumenical church. Life Church has to be committed to the body of Christ worldwide, saying, we are going to be about unity wherever we can be. Sometimes there are disagreements that fall on the line of, are you going to be a Christian or not? And then you've got to take a stand. But on everything else, we look for areas where we can agree upon. We look for how do we come around the gospel? Let's not spend our time, 
you know, splitting hairs about little differences in gray areas of the faith, but how do we come around preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and making sure that every tribe, tongue, and nation has heard? And so this is why Life Church is about uh, locally, on a local scale, blessing other churches wherever we can be. Um, inviting them to use this facility. Uh, now that we have two facilities, that's going to look different. Inviting more churches in to use those and blessing them and saying, how do we forward what you're doing in this community? How do we forward what you're doing to advance the gospel here in Sioux Falls? Uh, this is why we partner with other Christian organizations in this city. And we say, look, we believe in what you're doing because you're preaching the same gospel we are. And so let's partner together. Let's work together at uh, this is why globally we partner with missionaries, um, organizations that are bringing the gospel to every corner of the earth. And we say, how do we work together? How do we bless our brothers and sisters in Brazil and in China and in Africa, all over the continent where we've been? And we say, look, let's be together. This was Jesus' prayer for us. He wants us to be unified. It brings his heart joy when we're unified. To be one mind coming together around the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Friends, we need to press for unity around the gospel. And we do this through humility, through a Christ-like self-forgetfulness. And when the world sees how we operate, how we love each other, how we're together, they will know that Jesus has been sent. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning that you would make us one, even as you were one, and that through that unity, you would point the world to your son, Jesus, and that you would receive all the glory. It's in his name we pray. I think just looking and, and listening today, you know, there's all these, but how, but how, um, how are we supposed to be humble? How are we supposed to be unified? Because there are thing, those are things we're not naturally prone to. Um, and, and the good news is that we do have Jesus. That's what the gospel is about, that he did come um, to live a perfect life, to die the death to pay for our sin. And that he was resurrected um, so that we can be joined in him in that new life. Um, and we can experience the Holy Spirit living in us and empowering us to, to walk out this, this calling, to walk out this unity and this humility. Um, so if you're here today and you're hearing that and you're going, it does seem inho- impossible. I need the Holy Spirit. I need God in my life. Um, we're going to invite the prayer team to come up. And they're going to be here um, if you want to pray that for the first time or if it's just something you've been here and you just need prayer, come. Um, That's what this team is for. Uh, So I'm going to pray, and then um, you can either come for prayer or you're free to go. Father, we we know that you have called us to love as, as you have loved that you have come to rescue us. You have come to save us from our selfishness and our individualism that would isolate us from others and what that would call us away from you. 
And so we pray today, God, that you would come and you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would bind us together with one heart and one mind. Um, That knowing that we have your salvation, that you have come and rescued us, um, we no longer have to fight for that or work for that on our own, but we can trust your work on our behalf and that we would be able to um, live fully empowered through your Holy Spirit. So we pray you would just bless us as we leave today um, and unite us. In Jesus' name, amen.